today on Against the Grain. David Graeber, the radical anthropologist and prominent activist, had a lot to say about police and policing over the course of human history. Andrew Johnson has written about Graeber's take on police and about his own. I'm CS. Andrew Johnson joins me, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. I've often thought I could profitably spend the rest of my days reading and thinking and acting upon what David Graeber wrote. Yeah, David Graeber, the anthropologist and activist, the radical thinker and writer, the author or co-author of books like Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Andrew Johnson has long been drawn to Graeber's anthropological investigations and activist reflections, and specifically to what Graeber had to say about police. How long have police been around? Why do police treat street protesters the way they do? Why do most Americans accept and even support the police? Is there a way to get rid of that institution? Johnson believes Graeber's ideas can and should be put into conversation with those of police abolitionists, many of whom are pushing to defund the police. In an essay he wrote for the journal Anthropological Notebooks, Andrew Johnson delves into Graeber's writings and also shares many of his own views about the history of policing, the role of police in contemporary capitalist society, and the value of breaking what he calls the spell of police authoritarianism. Andrew Johnson teaches political science at Seattle University. A central thesis animating his research is that many of our preconceptions about police are inaccurate. Johnson's essay has the ironic title, Bureaucrats with Guns, or How We Can Abolish the Police If We Just Stop Believing in Them. When Andrew and I connected recently, he had this to say about David Graeber's focus on police. I think that... David Graeber is, is is very fascinated by by policing, and it re, reoccurs in pretty much every piece of his writing from the beginning of his career to the end. Um, and in fact, at the the very moment in which the police don't make an appearance in his uh, first essay and then book on meaningless work, uh, BS Jobs, it's very. Rem- interesting and revealing to me that the police are noticeably absent and it's the one time in which they don't make an appearance and i find that to be to be really interesting precisely because as an abolitionist i i do find police to be a sort of meaningless meaningless somewhat anti-productive uh social function um david graeber sort of begins his his career by by doing sort of studies in Madagascar what he finds interesting about Madagascar is the the absence of of state authority and that there's the persistence of police stations but also their non-operation and so in many respects Graeber's interest in police begins with his interest in anthropology begins by looking at sort of societies that don't rely upon the same sorts of authoritarian political institutions that we've now accepted as necessary and unassailable uh i think the other part of sort of david graber's interest in in policing is also about his his status as, as an activist and being involved in the global justice movement. And the essay on the phenomenology of giant puppets is largely part of his ethnographies of his involvement in the global justice movement, but it's also an interpretation or a theory of police insofar as he saw their operation and the way in which 
police were kind of the the fundamental bulwark, both supporting the sort of extortion of global bureaucrats, but also trying to prevent anything, you know, anything like democratic social movements. And I think that that's kind of the the basis of of sort of seeing David Graeber's interest in in his work is both his his work as an anthropologist and his work as an activist. So uh, we're going to be talking about you're going to be talking about uh, David Graeber's ideas in relation to to some degree a police abolitionism and maybe people haven't really heard that phrase or heard it very much. How would you define or describe? police abolitionism? Well, I would be surprised if your audience hasn't heard about police abolition, as it's become one of the predominant frames that has driven the uprisings in response to police uh, killings here in the United States. But, um, so I use the, you know, Joy James's comment that there's multiple abolitionisms. By this, I mean that Abolition is still kind of a, a, a contested concept. And I think that there's a lot of diversity amongst uh, abolitionist theorists and activists about what, what it might entail. Um, in the late 1990s, um, sort of the abolition movement sort of revives itself uh, largely in opposition to mass incarceration um, and uh, particularly through the work of, of someone like Angela Davis, who uh, was working to promote prison abolition, um, that we can sort of create social conditions necessary to make prisons obsolete. Um, and that this wasn't just an academic fad, uh, but that it also was a sort of social movement and, and involved the creation of organizing institutions such as critical resistance. I think that it's very interesting that we've now sort of seen a decisive shift away from uh, kind of the sole focus upon the prison and the the animus for a lot of the, the uprisings in the past decade have been about uh, police and police violence. Um, and I think that that's a really, really noticeable shift. Um, I think that you know, the phrase itself also catches people off guard. When people hear the phrase abolition, they hear it's sort of, it's kind of unqualified uh, demand to disappear or to get rid of uh, certain institutions. However, abolitionists have been really kind of vocal that the demand of abolition is not to just uh, undo repressive institutions, but also to kind of create care-based alternatives that might be able to more effectively, you know, meet the needs of the social population, but but also to like render forms of repressive state violence, such as police and prison, to be obsolete, uh, to create the the type of society such that crime itself wouldn't become a prominent uh, response to forms of economic and racial inequality. Many police abolitionists have been drawn to the idea that the police are a relatively recent phenomenon. Why do they find this idea that there was a time before police attractive? I think that it that for a lot of people, they believe that because the police are new, it makes it a lot easier to imagine that we can create future worlds without police. And, and I think that that is really the bedrock of this assumption, that by trying to say that police are a sort of modern phenomenon associated with Europe, with capitalism, with the creation of the modern state, that that we can sort of come up with alternative forms of social and political organization that don't rely upon police. Um, I, I think that that's a little bit of a sort of easy, kind of a, an easy fallback, and the logic doesn't necessarily hold. Um, there's There have been social and political practices that have lasted a really, really long time, but have necessary, have have kind of fallen out of practice. 
Um, and there's nothing to say that that new forms of technology might not kind of prove to prove the test of time and have amazing uh, durability. And trying to to think of police as new doesn't really do the the difficult work of trying to understand how even new institutions uh, create sort of intractable forms of durability. Andrew Johnson is my guest. He's a lecturer in the political science department at Seattle University. We are talking about an article he wrote called Bureaucrats with Guns, or How We Can Abolish the Police If We Just Stop Believing in Them. It appeared in the journal Anthropological Notebooks. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, let's talk about whether what might be called early societies had something akin to police. Did, for example, early indigenous societies in the Americas, did they have something uh, akin to police? It's a really, really interesting question. Um, So Graeber, you know, it was really interesting because in a promotional article for David Graeber and David Wingrow's newest book, uh, The Dawn of History, A New History of Humanity, one of the promotional articles that went alongside this publication distinctly referred to the indigenous critique of of European society as predicated upon a indigenous abolitionist justice system. At the same point in time, at least the past 10 years or so, David Graeber has been writing about the, the clown police and its migration from central and northern California through uh, the Southwest and into the Plains. And for Graeber, this is a really interesting moment to show that indigenous American societies did have odd police practices. So tell us what the clown police of certain indigenous societies in, say, California were. What, who were these people and what role did they play in society? Well, I think the first thing to, to, to point out is how incredibly comical the idea of clown policing is. Um, and at least it, as the practice originates, their, their humor coincided with their terror. And they were intended to be funny. They were also intended to be terrifying. Um, it's really interesting, for example, that the that the class of of people that were selected to become clown police were often they were always men. They were oftentimes sort of social outcasts, um, and they were only given power at certain particular rituals. So oftentimes, uh, sort of you know social social dance parties and they what makes them police is that they were given temporary forms of authority to to levy fines to whip children uh to punish non-participants um and so for graber and wingrow they say that it's really important that the first police must have been play police they must have been these sort of comical versions of a of a sort of mockumentary of policing, and the the horrible part about this history is the way in which they move from ritual and from sort of seasonality and a sort of temporary authority, and then they eventually become institutionalized. Um, by the time that uh, you see the Crow Police. Um, they have they become something resembling more of an autonomous bureaucratic force, but they still only maintained uh, their sort of police authority during the buffalo hunting season. So you're saying that the crow, the police in Crow Indian communities, differed from the clown police and that they uh, maintained a more consistent authoritarianism. Yes, that is exactly what I am saying. Following um, David David Graeber's comments and some of his his, his most recent work with uh, David Wingrow. And what conclusions do you draw from 
what Graeber and OneGrow have revealed about the the clown police in a certain American indigenous communities and the Crow police in terms of the powers that these people had, these selected people had, um, and the importance of ritual to their emergence or presentation before the community as people with certain um, authority. There are multiple conclusions that I want to abstract from their work. First of all, if we want to follow the abolitionist slogan that there was once a time before police and that time is coming soon, I want to challenge that assumption by arguing that that policing has a longer history than uh, many abolitionists are willing to admit. Um, Second, I want to uh, kind of disaggregate the state and police institutions. Um, Oftentimes, uh, political scientists uh, see the creation of police alongside the creation of states. For David Graeber, there are states without police and there are police without states. Um, Another comment that I I want to to make is that the first police may have, that they began as a sort of play police, and that this was actually intended to ward off sort of institutionalized authority. Um, I I utilize the phrase provisional police power uh, largely to then make the argument that we could discontinue the police based upon upon this model. If, if police are sort of seasonal or temporary, uh, they also have the ability to, to be abolished and to be done away with. Um, the, the other kind of funny comment that I make that I actually think is, is really important is, is I, I use the, the imagery of clowns to say that perhaps we need something like a silly abolitionism such that we're willing to maintain police forces uh, insofar as we outfit them in outlandish costumes, tricycles, and squirt squirt guns. Um, And I think that there's, you know, it's not just uh, the the clown police that are evident with this. I think that trying to think of, of police as a kind of, you know, mocking of authority, there's sort of, um, an important sort of political critique that I think abolitionists could try to clue in on in this regard. David Graeber described police as partisans in a covert war against society. What did he mean by this? Yeah, I, I actually um, wanted to, to say that that might have been my language. I, I don't know if David Graeber actually uses the phrase police are partisans in a covert war against society. However, if I was trying to interpret David Graeber's essay on the phenomenology of puppets, that is what I took to be the the lasting contribution. Um, And that police play a decisive role uh, in not as sort of neutral arbiters of law, but actively trying to to defend the capitalist, racial, and political orders that be. Um, Oftentimes, they take a decisive uh, stance against anything resembling democratic social movements. Insofar as they are involved in a covert war, it's, I I take from this um, David Graeber's sort of comment that the propaganda offensive against puppeteers, uh, against the black bloc anarchists of the global justice movement as a form of mythological warfare, that the police are involved in a, a political campaign to characterize democratic social movements as, as moral panics that threaten the, uh, the fabric of the, the social order as is. Um, and. And by doing so, they're actually willing to not just engage in sort of a propaganda offensive, but they're actually willing to utilize tear gas, uh, armored personnel carriers, uh, kind of phony phony charges uh, to arrest activists um, that are otherwise engaging in lawful, um, seemingly peaceful activities.
Right, and and this is the the war part of of what you call the the covert war. That, that there are sort of war zones in streets where the confrontations with police follow um, certain laws of war, perhaps unstated, but that there are rules of engagement. You write for both sides, uh, for the protester side and the police side. So to get back to your argument about the police as partisans, I, I take it you don't agree with the notion, the widely held notion that police exist to fight crime. Oh, I disagree with that immensely. And David Graeber does too. I love to use his quote that uh, sociologists point out that about 6% of only about 6% of the average police officer's time is spent on anything resembling uh, crime. Um, and this is kind of a truism that, that, is, that is true within police studies by conservative uh, police theorists as well as, as more radical police theorists. Um, anyone that spends a lot of time on policing knows that one of the real mandates behind policing is to maintain order and that the role of police as crime fighters is rooted more in their kind of the the myths that sustain them and not anything resembling their actual practice or their function their their kind of their original structural position within within states I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Andrew Johnson joins me. He teaches at Seattle University in the Political Science Department. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at UC Santa Barbara, and he contributed an article to an issue of the journal Anthropological Notebooks that is a special issue paying tribute to David Graeber, the radical anthropologist, anarchist, a leading figure in the Occupy Wall Street movement and author of books like Debt, the First 5,000 Years, and with David Wengro, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. David Graeber called police bureaucrats with guns. Uh, why did he say that? Yeah, um, you know, he, he repeats this phrase again and again throughout his career. Sometimes he, he calls them, you know, bureau, bureaucrats with violence or, or bureaucrats with weapons at other times. And his argument is that, is that insofar as police or government administrators, the one thing that makes them unique within the sort of political administration, within bureaucracy is their capacity to use violence. Police have the ability to pose non-negotiable solutions backed up by a threat of force. Um, and so I, I think that this is really important because one of the ways in which I want to kind of marshal abolitionism for my own for my for my own political ideas, is to connect it with a kind of anti-bureaucratic ethos. Um, and so, so David Graeber's sort of analysis of police as bureaucrats with guns, for me, is really, really important because not only do I want to take away their guns, I also want to, to kind of undo the sort of extensive bureaucracy that has become synonymous with capitalism and... Um, state authoritarianism. And yet you do also write that the bureaucratic theory of police implies that they, that police, are constrained, nonpartisan, and politically neutral. And certainly you want to push back on, on that notion, right? A hundred percent. Their partisanship, their hidden political role, their militarized mission exposes police as an anti-democratic institution. Um, they oftentimes are not constrained and they have kind of an automatic immunity built into their to their status as as uh, state functionaries um, they are certainly partisan and they are not politically neutral they're politically conservative and in my opinion um, 
domineering and authoritarian. Let's move to what David Graeber, again, the radical anthropologist, said about policing in the context of magic and myth. You've, I think you've alluded to this a little bit before, but uh, this is an important part of your essay because you see David Graeber as stressing sort of the imaginative role of, of the, the way people imagine the police and the police's role in society, uh, sort of common sense notions of police authoritarianism, that David Graeber was, was pointing toward, toward the imagination and saying that if the imagination, the public imagination, the mass imagination could change, then something radical could happen to a police authority. So what did Graeber say about uh, policing in the context of this sort of uh, mystery and myth and magic? Well, first of all, David Graeber is fascinated with magics and myth. His his work as an anthropologist is, is very interested in things like witchcraft and spells. Um, and Therefore, I think he's really attracted to the anarchist claim that what we need to do is we need to break the spell that capitalism holds over us. And that largely this is a kind of internal process. We imagine that police are necessary and, you know, an unavoidable aspect of, of living in, in political communities. Um, another thing that I find important about the sort of centering of the mythic and the divine and the magical aspect of police is his allusion to what he calls metahuman beings. Um, in this instance, he, you know, the the clown police, for example, kind of play a they play a symbolic role within Amer U.S. American indigenous societies, or not U.S. Amer American indigenous societies, um, much before the creation of the United States. My apologies. Um, I take that and then I want to apply it to the kind of romantic sort of metahuman characteristics that we now put upon police via uh, the culture industry, uh, particularly through a constant uh, bombard of Hollywood films and television about, about police as as crime fighters and and kind of heroic figures within society um and you know if we're gonna try to see david graber as having a conversation with let's say thinkers like carl schmidt or walter benjamin on the notion of 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 sovereignty and violence as mythic and divine uh david graber sort of puts that into real context as is an anthropologist but I, I think it also, we sort of find ourselves kind of caught up into this illusion. And how do we break break out of the sort of mythic and magical spells that our kind of political ideologies have, have placed upon us? So then, right, the idea might be, well, how could we, how could we change that? How could views of police and authoritarianism change, and that seems to uh, indicate or require, as David Graeber says, a, a change in, in the way we think, in the way we imagine. I, I get the sense that you're, while maybe you're sympathetic to that, and maybe you see that as an important precondition of, of making radical change, right? If people stop believing in the police, then um, something may well happen to the police, but I also sense that you see certain limitations to just focusing on the imaginative realm. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, insofar as um, Hollywood culture has turned police into metahuman beings, it's often done so through the superhero genre. Um, the Batman, the Punisher, uh, provide kind of an important kind of mythological status for how most people in a commonsensical way uh, think about police. And it's, it's also, I think, really important historically. Um, police is kind of structurally created out of vigilante violence. Um, and so the Batman and Punisher mythology 
is you know it 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 creates a an a belief in a thin blue line that uh, is predicated upon a very simplistic and outdated uh, Hobbesian theory about the the birth of order from a sort of state of chaos and anarchy. Um, and that's just not not necessarily true, but it's so built into how people uh, think about politics these days. Um, in regards to the, the second half of your question, I, I am indeed a little pessimistic about the political role of the imagination and the priority that David Graeber gives it. Um, I, coin, I, I phrase my, my paper, how we can abolish the police if we just stop believing in them. And, you know, I did this in jest because it's the exact opposite of what I actually believe. Um, and I, I found time and time again that oftentimes people haven't quite uh, understood the joke implicit in the title of my article. But the, the ending of my, of my paper and my essay is largely a critique of David Graeber's emphasis upon political imaginaries. And maybe to kind of put it in um, you know, a sort of one sentence, I think that the role of political imaginaries have a limited material force. And for that very reason, I think that it is police will not just melt away, they will not just wither away. Um, unlike the sort of uh, hopeful and optimistic stance that David Graeber takes at the very end of his Phenomenology of Giant Puppets essay. Right. Doesn't have material force, uh, whereas you, I think, rightly claim in your article that the police embody force. I mean, there is a reality principle you talk about in which it is undeniable that whatever work we do on the imaginative level, it's the police that have the guns and the truncheons and so on. Yes, I, I make this comment in a footnote, too, that that the police are also trying to defend their own mythologies, their own political imaginaries. What makes them theirs different, what makes them having one a, a sort of more effective, more effective way is that they've turned their imaginaries into reality largely through force and violence. Um, and they've, they've given it a material existence. Let's talk about uh, the geographical reach of police. David Graeber wrote about the formation of a global police state, which counters certain notions of police as concerned only with sort of internal domestic security. Uh, what do you think about uh, David Graeber's characterization, uh, this characterization of a global police state? Well, the first thing that I think about that is is maybe just a, a question about terminology and whether that's the right way to refer to what we what we see all around us. Ultimately, I, I think that the phrase global police state is a three word oxymoron. Um, you know, terminology aside, I do think that we sort of see that we've created a fully formed global police network that uh, spans the whole world. Following Stuart Schrader's analysis, the thin blue line belts the world um, is kind of um, a, a phrase that keeps coming back to me. Um, and police are, are, are normally cast as local institutions, categorically not global. But it has been um, a sort of focal part of United States American uh, foreign policy to create, fund, and assist police institutions uh, all throughout the world. I want to get back to the issue of uh, puppets, puppeteers, puppet activists that David Graeber was interested in and that you're interested in. What do you see as the goal of puppet activists? What are they trying to make observers think and do? And why do you write that puppet activists are more of a threat to the police than the black block the you know the notorious uh, anarchists who bash storefront and vehicle windows 
I largely follow Graeber's analysis on, on this point. For, for Graeber, he's fascinated by puppets because they are themselves metahuman beings that allow people to think otherwise. You know, that we could imagine uh, worlds outside of capitalism or outsides of states um, and without police forces. Uh, nevertheless, you know, Graeber's also sympathetic with with the black bloc and in forms of, of militant militant activism. Um, the the sort of contrast between the two is that there's nothing overtly threatening about puppeteer activists, and the police repression and harassment of them is is indeed a, a, a moment for our political curiosity. Whereas the images of black block breaking windows becomes a sort of moral panic in the early 2000s that's used to justify uh, more militarized protest policing. Um, you know, I, I kind of find myself at the end of this essay maybe adopting a more militant tone um, and romanticizing and glamorizing the burning of the third precinct in Minneapolis. I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to walk that back. I, I think we're at a moment in which we need a sort of more militant, more militant response to uh, police oppression. But one thing that I think has been true about the sort of most recent protest waves, um, starting with Ferguson and um, then throughout the summer of 2020, is that we've had a sort of a, a lack of festivity. Um, the pleasure activism that was such a focal aspect of the global justice movement has really disappeared. And it's been replaced by sort of symbolic moments in which an entire crowd takes a knee. And, and that, I think, is, is to our detriment. And there is something to be said about, you know, what I find really fascinating about puppeteer activism, and Graeber does too a little bit, is how they kind of create a political culture. They utilize the fest the festival, the festivity, um, as the sort of energy and momentum for for activism and street street protests. And and I I, I find myself much more uh, drawn to that than the sort of godlike images that the puppets are meant to convey and the the sort of um, political imaginaries that that Graeber finds so so important that's the voice of Andrew Johnson he teaches in the political science department at Seattle University the full name of the article that he wrote that appeared in the journal anthropological notebooks is bureaucrats with guns or how we can abolish the police if we just stop believing in them and i'm cs song and this is against the grain on pacifica radio right and and you were talking about the the burning down of the third precinct in minneapolis this was the police station that protesters uh, burned three days after george floyd was killed by police in 2020 uh, that you write was uh, was a, a significant event, right? In in the minds uh, and attitudes of many police abolitionists. Geo Marr, in his most recent book, refers to it as a glorious moment. That it was glorious indeed, and you know, I I kind of followed Geo in having a libidinal libidinal investment in in that moment and it's also one that i've tried to interrogate it in myself you know was i you know do i just have the sort of my own political fascination with with violence uh you know in this instance the sort of you know kind of revolutionary violence and um and and so i think it's really important to unpack precisely when i compare it with the storming of the capitol on january 6th and both the burning of the third precinct and the storming of the Capitol, for me, represent sort of two polar, polar opposite moments in recent American uh, history. 
And the burning of the third precinct for me was a truly proto-revolutionary moment. It was kind of something similar to our sort of storming of the Bastille. It represented a moment in which everything became possible. It kind of created a moment in which something like a revolution against police authoritarianism was all of a sudden possible in a way that it had not been possible beforehand. Um, and this is kind of contrasted with the, the storming of the Capitol in which you kind of have, you know, kind of Republican clowns, um, you know, finding themselves at the, the podium of the House of Representatives and, and Congress. But nevertheless, it there was no sort of proto-revolutionary moment or potential in their in their storming of the Capitol. If anything, they it was it was an attempt to kind of to hold on to power uh, as opposed to kind of kind of recreating the you know political society as we see it. Andrew, what do you make of the defund the police demands of many police abolitionists and others? The defund the police slogan, um, I find to be really captivating. It's a really great way to translate police abolition into a public policy friendly approach. Um, It it takes the idealism um, of abolitionism and it turns it into something like a, a material political strategy. And it also is why the democratic establishment and the political establishment is so afraid of the slogan. It's not that they don't understand it, it's that they're afraid of it. I think, though, there are reasons to be a little concerned about our focus upon, uh, you know, fiscal policy and budgets. You know, ultimately, the it's politically efficacious to turn the anger over state-sanctioned extrajudicial killings into a budgetary dispute. Um, and, and for that reason, I, I think that there's, that there's a way to think about the defund the police m- sort of movement as kind of the, the sort of socialist wing of the, of the abolitionist movement as a whole. It's a way to kind of turn police abolition into something like a policy plank of the sort of democratic socialist sort of electoral, you know, form of politics. And getting back to your characterization of yourself as an abolition pessimist, trace the contours of that, the reasons why you don't think uh, maybe abolition in any meaningful sense, police abolition, is realistic in the near future, and and what that means for your understanding of abolitionist as a viable and important and worthwhile political project for a radical such as yourself. Well, first of all, I my calling myself an abolition pessimist isn't meant to say that I don't think that abolition is realistic. It's really based upon a sort of more of a political style. And, and I think one respects is it kind of comes out of a, it, it comes out of a, a disagreement with a lot of my comrades within social movements who are so interested in trying to utilize hope as a, as a social movement strategy. And for me, I think that this kind of lends itself to, to some of the feelings of, of disillusionment and uh, apathy amongst the general public. I think a lot of people are just, you know, they're not interested in doing the hard work of, of organizing and activism, largely because they think that everything's going to just work out, work out in the end. Another part about it is it just seems to me inaccurate. It seems that trying to center hope as a core component to social movement strategies is more about trying to appeal to an inaccurate understanding of political psychology and less about a a sort of honest assessment or accounting of the material conditions of the current political situation. Um, That being said, 
insofar as it applies to abolition, I think that it, it comes out of kind of my irritation in the way in which abolition has now become so focused upon defending abolitionist hypotheticals, trying to make the case that uh, a world without police is possible, and also trying to engage in these sort of commonsensical disputes that I find myself in again and again and again uh, with people who are like, okay, well, you don't like the police, you don't like prisons, you know, what do you propose as an alternative, right? This is the sort of um, kind of like eternal return of kind of every conversation about police abolition is a demand to justify hypothetical alternatives. And I find this to be a really... Um, it, trying to engage in a politics in which we accept our adversaries' assumptions is a bad form of of doing politics. And so I, I'm trying to kind of push back upon this. The other thing is, is I really think that there is a, there is value in trying to describe the path that we are headed on as assuredly dystopian. Um, ultimately, I, I think that we are at a moment in which um, either because of political dysfunction or ecological collapse or increased forms of the technological means of surveillance, control, and violence, we're really facing a, a moment in which police power is not lessening, but it's intensifying. And we should be really, really honest about that. And we should be honest about the ways in which police authoritarianism is actually going to get worse. Um, and that we're headed towards a moment in which police violence um, is, is going to be a sort of an existential threat to the species is, is kind of the is the core point that I want to take take away from this. So this isn't to say that abolition is not realistic. In fact, I think that abolition is more necessary than ever. I don't think that we really have much hope of, of surviving as a species um, without trying to deconstruct the sort of necropolitical institutions that are allowing some to maintain their dominance over others. To what extent can we speak of an already existing abolitionism in the sense of, and I'm reading your article here, that a world without police is realized every moment when people solve problems without them, without the police. Do you see instances of this growing, proliferating? Are you encouraged by the trends you see? I mean, in some respects, yes, but in most respects, no, actually not. Um, maybe it's just because I was just I was just rereading this article, but I, I, I kind of am, am finding myself captivated by this phrase by Adrienne Marie Brown called unthinkable thoughts. And, you know, they're an expert on sort of transformative justice processes and I found that my involvement in, in movement spaces has revealed to me how incredibly difficult these processes really are. Um, and so because of that, I, I tend to have a little bit of a, you know, a sort of cynical or pessimistic uh, view about this. I mean, ultimately, we sort of use the community as kind of a a floating signifier to somehow signal signal that there is alternatives to police institutions and that we could come up with community solutions to conflict resolutions. And communities throughout history and into the present have been really effective means of, of wielding violence upon um, you know, their adversaries and enemies. Um, and so I don't think that there's a lot of easy solutions out there. Um, and in fact, I think that some of the ways in which there's been a conversation about movement spaces is as both defending a kind of 
abolitionist practice, but also being uh, wedded to a sort of a, a punitive and, and ju judiciary, um, you know, mindset. And I think that that, that, you know, it's certainly not our like biggest problem, um, but it remains a really, really difficult issue to resolve within as what you and me have called actually existing abolitionism. Um, and so I, I, I tend to have a, you know, a little bit more of a sort of pessimistic mindset about that. It's not to say that I don't support, you know, restorative transformative justice processes. I've, I've found them to be really remarkably effective and beneficial forms of conflict resolution that are infinitely better than the repressive court and legal system that we that we practice on a sort of macro level um, but nevertheless we kind of fall back again and again to um, sort of positions of judgment and uh, sort of desire to see our adversaries uh, punished andrew johnson lecturer in political science at Yale university doctoral candidate in the department of political science at uc santa barbara again you can check out his article which appeared in the journal Anthropological Notebooks. It's entitled Bureaucrats with Guns or How We Can Abolish the Police If We Just Stop Believing in Them. Uh, Andrew, thanks for writing this piece and for the work that went into it. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you to your audience for, for taking the time to listen. Um, um, I would encourage anyone to reach out to me if they'd, uh, they'd love to talk more about these issues. Um, I uh, have really appreciated sharing space with you today. Andrew Johnson's email is andrew underscore johnson at ucsb.edu. And I'm CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>